presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about mourning. Welcome, everybody, to episode 65 of First Years. Today, we are talking about chapter 36 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. But before we jump in, LeakyCon is coming up, and I have a schedule for you guys. So I will be on four different panels during LeakyCon. Three of them will be on Friday, and one of them will be on Saturday. So on Friday, you can catch me at 1.15 with the panel honoring the unsung heroes of your favorite series. And then after that, at 2.30, you can find me on the panel Death as a Symbol in Harry Potter. And then again on Friday at 3.45, there's a podcasting panel called Can You Hear Me Now that I will also be on with a bunch of other podcast creators. I'm very excited about it. And then on Saturday at 3.45, you will find me on the panel The Chosen One's Chosen Girl. I'm very excited about all of these, so if you will be at LeakyCon, I hope to see you there. Please say hello. I will have ribbons and it's going to be a really great time. I also want to give a shout out to Slinky1126 for writing a really kind review on the podcast. Thank you so much. It means so much to me when you guys do that. If you contact me via Instagram um, at First Years Pod and let me know what your house is, I will give you 20 points to your house for that. So thank you, thank you, thank you so, so much. You guys are so wonderful and kind. So let's dive into chapter 36. We left off on kind of a bummer of a chapter. I hope everyone is okay. If you are in shock, then you definitely align with Harry here at the very beginning of the chapter. It says, quote, He did not believe it. He would not believe it. Still, he fought Lupin with every bit of strength he had. Lupin did not understand. People hid behind that curtain. He had heard them whispering the first time he had entered the room. Sirius was hiding, simply lurking out of sight. Unquote. It is heartbreaking. Harry has been through quite a lot in these books so far, and here's just another thing to add on to it. He was so worried about Sirius that he ran to the ministry to try and save him, only for him to not be there, only for him to show up to help Harry and then Harry loses him anyway. It's terrible, and I cannot imagine the kind of guilt that that brings. And we don't really see the same kind of pretending and misunderstanding when Cedric dies. In book four, it says, quote, Terrified of what he was about to see, he opened his stinging eyes. Cedric was lying spread-eagled on the ground beside him. He was dead. For a second that contained an eternity, Harry stared into Cedric's face, 
at his open gray eyes, blank and expressionless as the windows of a deserted house, at his half-open mouth, which looked slightly surprised. And then before Harry's mind had accepted what he was seeing, before he could feel anything but numb disbelief, he felt himself being pulled to his feet. Unquote. That's a very different response than Harry bellowing Sirius's name and screaming that he isn't dead. Both are very evident responses to trauma, but they hit differently, right? One, because it was Harry's first experience with death. And then also, Cedric isn't nearly as important to Harry as Sirius is. That might be terrible to say, but it's true. Sirius is everything to Harry. He is the present replacement for his father. Harry's world really just stops here, and I think Lupin deserves a lot of credit for his care of Harry in this moment. He just lost yet another of his best friends, and he is ensuring that Harry will not run through the veil after Sirius. And speaking of the veil, I have some interesting details that I would like to dive into. Some of this is from my presentation of death as a symbol in Harry Potter, and I think it really fits here for us to talk about. The veil itself is worth talking about. A veil between life and death and our world and the world beyond isn't new. It's something that has been present in folklore and mythology for a long time. And in more than one way, we have wedding veils, mourning veils, and the veil between worlds that becomes thinner around Samhain or Halloween. Mourning veils were a way to publicly show the grief someone had after their partner or family member had passed, and it was very popular in the Victorian era. It was a requirement to wear all black, have all black accessories, and there were mandatory periods of mourning that one had to go through, and the length of that period depended on the person that you lost. So spouses, for example, would be much longer than children. Covering the face with a black veil represented death and the loss of life and the loss of light from that person's life. When we look at the veil between worlds and Samhain or Halloween, it comes at a time of the year when things are already dying. The seasons are changing from fall to winter, and the plants all die, the days are much shorter, night falls more quickly, and there's a veil between our world and the world beyond, that of the dead. And this veil becomes its thinnest during Samhain or Halloween. And if you look back at this holiday, Pagan celebrated this as a time to make contact with the dead and prepare for the winter. Extra places could be set at the dining table, or food was set up outside for ancestors, or rituals could be done since it would be easier to divine or scry during this time. When we look at how Halloween is celebrated today by our society, it's not just about candy, but also watching scary movies. Ghosts and graveyards and all manner of spooky things are involved in this holiday as remnants of what the holiday used to be about. And this even connects to losing James and Lily. They were lost on Halloween night to Voldemort before the first book begins. In these last few chapters, we've seen a physical manifestation of that veil. We talked last episode about what it looked like, and one of the lines that I really want to highlight is, quote, 
Unsupported by any surrounding wall, the archway was hung with a tattered black curtain or veil, which, despite the complete stillness of the cold surrounding air, was fluttering very slightly, as though it had just been touched. Unquote. Harry goes down to it because the veil is still moving, and he has a strange feeling that someone is behind it. But there's nothing to see behind it when he walks around it. Harry also has an urge to walk through it, seeing beauty in it, and being intrigued by it. He also hears whispering coming from the other side, which is why in this moment, he still thinks there's a way to get to Sirius, because he thinks that he's, he's just on the other side of it. The movement of the veil is important to point out here because it speaks to the essence of death that is unchanging. Whether or not the veil is thin during Samhain or Halloween, it's always there. Death is always there, and it always is connected to our world. And one could argue that the movement of the veil speaks to the fact that people are constantly passing through it every single moment. Death isn't immobile. It is active, and unfortunately is constantly greeting new people, like Sirius Black, as we've just seen. This moment is pivotal for Harry. It's another person who has been lost to this cause. It's the second death Harry has witnessed. It is the first time he has lost a family member and remembered it, been there for it. And you can see in Harry's reaction how he goes right after Bellatrix and is ready to perform an unforgivable curse on her, how this death affects him. This is also a huge moment for us readers. This is the biggest death we've experienced. And yet, this description of the veil is so imperative for us to pay attention to. It flutters as though a high wind blows through it and then it falls back into place. It shows that no matter that Harry's world just got rocked, or ours just did, the world continues on after something devastating comes to pass. The veil accepts Sirius and then is ready for whoever is going to pass through it next. And if we weren't convinced about Harry's heartbreak before, him running after Bellatrix is a sure sign about what he's feeling. Harry is angry enough that he attempts Crucio on Bellatrix, but it doesn't quite work the way it normally does. And I think it's interesting here to see how much intention matters behind spells and what happens when spells don't hit their intended target. And we have a couple of examples here. Bellatrix's spell to Harry, quote, hit the wrought gold gates at the other end of the atrium so that they rang like bells, unquote. Harry's attempt at Crucio, quote, Bellatrix screamed. The spell had knocked her off her feet, but she did not writhe and shriek with pain as Neville had, unquote. Bellatrix's second spell, quote, her counterspell hit the head of the handsome wizard, which was blown off and landed 20 feet away, unquote. Bellatrix's Crucio hits the centaur, and it, quote, the centaur's arm, holding its bow, spun off and landed with a crash on the floor a short distance from the golden wizard's head, unquote. And we learn from Bellatrix that with Crucio, you need to mean it. 
not just with righteous anger, which Harry definitely has, but one needs to enjoy the pain they'll inflict in order for it to work, which is just chilling and says a lot about the people who do use it. So I think Harry's attempt here to perform Crucio in the fine line of righteous anger versus enjoyment of inflicting pain says a lot about Harry here. I don't think anyone would argue that his anger and his attempt isn't justified, especially against a witch such as Bellatrix, but the fact that he can't do it says so much about his morality and where he stands compared to others in this book series. Bellatrix demands the prophecy, and Harry tells her that it's broken. And we hear fear in Bellatrix's voice. Voldemort has been working on this plan for a while, and it's a complete failure. And we know that he doesn't like it when his followers fail on their missions. So even though Bellatrix is high up in the ranks, she still fears what he could do in his anger. And just when we think that it's going to be a showdown between Harry and Voldemort, Dumbledore finally comes in to help Harry, the first time since the trial, all the way in the beginning of the book. And we've heard from the beginning of this series that Voldemort only ever feared Dumbledore. And it's interesting to see them come face to face finally. Even in the way they duel is fascinating. Voldemort's first two spells are the Killing Curse, while Dumbledore brings statues to life in order to protect Harry and get Bellatrix away from the fight. And Voldemort even calls Dumbledore out on it. He says, quote, You do not seek to kill me, Dumbledore. Above such brutality, are you? To which Dumbledore responds, We both know that there are other ways of destroying a man, Tom. And Voldemort yells, There is nothing worse than death. Which really reveals everything about Voldemort in a single sentence. His whole deal is that he's trying to conquer death, and he finally did it in Book 4. He says to his Death Eaters when they join him in the graveyard, And then I ask myself, but how could they have believed I would not rise again? They, who knew the steps I took long ago to guard myself against mortal death, They who had seen proofs of the immensity of my power in the times when I was mightier than any living wizard. And Dumbledore, in this fight in Book 5, says that his failure to understand that there are things worse than death has always been his greatest weakness. As we see these two duel, we really see some amazing magic. We have Dumbledore, who we've been told is the greatest wizard of all time, and we have Voldemort, who is kind of the opposite side of the same coin. He is the greatest dark wizard of all time, or he's trying to be, and they're really evenly matched. And something that stood out to me as I paid attention to this duel is that Dumbledore isn't alone in this fight. He has the statues he's brought to life helping him, and Fox swallows the killing curse for him. I think that's an important detail to note, that Voldemort is really on his own here in this fight. Voldemort is so opposed to Dumbledore's view on death that he uses Harry against him. He essentially possesses Harry and says, If death is nothing, Dumbledore, kill the boy. 
And while Voldemort claims that nothing is worse than death, Harry has the line, quote, let the pain stop. Let him kill us. End it, Dumbledore. Death is nothing compared to this, unquote. So Voldemort thinks nothing is worse than death. But with the pain that Harry is in, he would welcome it in order to make it all stop. Death would be better than the pain that he's feeling. I think that is so important to note because in writing, you really don't often have sort of a throwaway line. And I think it really says a lot. And I think it's an important line for us to pay attention to after we've had that whole conversation about how nothing is worse than death. And then to have Harry actually say that no, in this moment, death actually might be better. And something else to point out here is that it says, quote, as Harry's heart filled with emotion, the creature's coils loosened. The pain was gone. Harry was lying face down on the floor, his glasses gone, shivering as though he lay upon ice, not wood, unquote. Do you think that Voldemort left Harry's body because witnesses were finally arriving? Or because of the emotions that Harry was feeling? It could be both. And I think this line means we can't discount Harry's feelings and the effect it may have had on Voldemort in this moment. That perhaps the human part of Harry just doesn't vibe with the complete inhumanity of Voldemort. How do you think that highlights their differences? At the end of this chapter, Fudge fucking finally sees that Voldemort is actually back. What a concept. And that he can no longer hide this problem and pretend it just, you know, isn't happening. And I love how Dumbledore is just so done with Fudge and takes zero shit from him. He's literally calling the shots and he's like, I'll be generous and I'll give you 30 minutes of my time and that's about it. And it's important to him that Harry gets back to school safely. And the last question I want to pose to you as we close out this episode is, Dumbledore has been so absent this whole book and has really let Harry down in a lot of ways. Do you think this makes up for any of it? Think on that in the meantime. For next episode, you need to read chapter 37. I hope I see you at LeakyCon. Please come say hi if you will be there. And I will see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah jones Meyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have. And we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.